Let's take our Bibles. Let's go to the Gospel of John, please. The Gospel of John, chapter number 3. John, chapter number 3. John, chapter number 3. As you know, we are going through the Gospel of John together on Sunday mornings and studying verse by verse, sometimes phrase by phrase, section by section, line upon line, precept upon precept, looking at what God has to say to us out of this wonderful book of truth, the Gospel of John. This, this Gospel, the Gospel of John, this, this book is so important to the Christian and this world that Christians and many years ago churches decided to use the Gospel of John even as a gospel tract and have just that book printed out and passed out to uh, lost people for them to read it and see the truth of Jesus Christ and come to know Jesus as their Savior. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, the most important decision you will ever make in this life is to decide to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the worst decision you could possibly make is to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. And God gave us the Gospel of John. One of the reasons is, is so that we would believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, that he is the Savior of all men. And I love, I love the fact that we're getting to jump into John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is one of those mountain peak chapters in the scriptures. Uh, what we find in this chapter uh, possibly are the most important words you'll ever come across uh, in your life. It's what's found in John chapter number 3. In John 3, we have a conversation that takes place between a man named Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, this is a private conversation. Uh, this is one of the more surprising things as far as my mind is concerned. It's very surprising. You, you would think that, at least, at least if I was God and I did it the way I think it should have been done, which is oftentimes extremely wrong, uh, but if, if it was up to me, I would have had these words of Christ in John 3 spoken to everybody at one time, or at least an enormous crowd, and, and all of these people hear it at one time, but that's not what happened here. This is a conversation between one man and the Lord Jesus Christ in a very private setting. But I am so glad that the Lord made sure you and I were able to eavesdrop in on that conversation and see what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say to Nicodemus. Because what we're about to read concerning what Jesus said to Nicodemus is absolutely enough truth to save the entire world from sin and hell. And what we're going to look at today, there'll be enough truth in what we read today that if you're here and you've never been saved, there's enough truth that we're going to look at this morning that will save your soul from sin, keep you out of hell, and set you for heaven and eternity. Uh, what, what verses, what truth is found in John chapter 3? Uh, the Bible says in verse number 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. 
So here's Nicodemus who comes to Jesus Christ and he's going to speak to the Lord. And what we're going to do is as we walk down through this chapter, we're going to, we're going to see the conversation. We're going to go back and forth. We're going to see what Nicodemus has to say, then how the Lord responds. Then we'll see something else that Nicodemus says, and then we'll see how the Lord responds all the way down through the majority of this chapter. We'll, we'll go back and forth, and we'll examine this vital, this imperative conversation. Thank God for Nicodemus, who came by way of night and came to Jesus and, and approached the Lord, though privately, Thank God he had this conversation because in this conversation, Jesus Christ gives us some of the most glorious truth ever given to man. Now, the cleansing of the temple has taken place in chapter 2. And we looked at that a few weeks ago, how Jesus cleaned the temple out. He made that scourge. He turned over tables. He was, he, he was uh, pouring out the money. I mean, he, he made a mess of things, if you will because of the zealousness of Christ toward his house. And this being around the Passover season, uh, devout Jews from all over the world were here for the Passover celebration. And there's probably no doubt that Nicodemus was there. Nicodemus being a Pharisee, no doubt he saw what took place. No doubt Nicodemus saw some of the miracles that were taking place. Remember last week we were looking at verse number 23, 24 and 25, where many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the miracles, which he did. I'd almost guarantee it, Nicodemus saw those miracles as well. So he sees how Jesus disrupted uh, the mannerisms of the temple and the hypocrisies and the thievery that was going on in the temple. Nicodemus sees that. He sees the miracles. And so all these things are having an effect on Nicodemus. So he approaches the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to begin this thought today. And we're looking at the subject, you must be born again. You must be born again. That's the, that's the thought for the day. You must be born again. You say, well, why, why would you make that your title? Because Jesus said in verse number 7, you must be born again. And that's where Jesus is going to try to get Nicodemus to. He's going to get Nicodemus to the place of understanding this, this concept of the new birth. But it begins by the coming of Nicodemus. Verse 1 again, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The Bible says here he is a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were, were a very conservative, very strict religious group in national Israel. Very conservative. However, though they were conservative and very strict, they had gotten to the place where they had elevated the oral law to be equal with the written law. We have the written law, the Old Testament, what God said the law ought to be. But down through the years, the religious leaders of Israel began to speak new laws or add to them and, and they got to the place where they felt like the oral law, what men taught was just as authoritative as what God said. Uh, but I want to remind you today, friend, nothing supersedes the word of God. This is our final authority for all faith and practice. Your beliefs and my beliefs, your opinions and my opinions do not supersede, transcend, or even equal to 
what God has said in His Word. If you have a thought or an opinion that disagrees with this, your thought and opinion is wrong. And this is the truth of God. But the Pharisees had got to the place where they had equated man's words with God's word. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 6, he says, Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. When you put man's ideas and man's concepts equal with God, you destroy the effect of God's words. And that's what's taking place in the religious world of the Pharisees. They had come to develop a, a belief system that taught a salvation by works. They'd got to the place where they, they believed that if you did keep the law of God, whether it was the written law of God or the oral tradition of the Pharisees, if you keep the law of God, it would guarantee your salvation. And you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how many Baptists who attend Baptist churches Come to church and actually believe what the Pharisees believed, that your lifestyle can get you to heaven and get you out of hell. You'd be surprised how many people go to Baptist churches and believe that getting baptized will help them get into heaven. Or reading through the Bible will help them get to heaven or guarantee them getting to heaven. Or attending church. I wonder if there's anybody in here today that you think by being here today, that's going to help you get to heaven and not go to hell. If that's your thought process, if that's your belief, that contradicts what this says. This says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. If you and I could obtain salvation and obtain heaven and escape hell by doing things, whether it's getting baptized or living a good life or going to church or whatever it may be, then we would have the right to pat ourselves on the back and brag that we helped ourselves get to heaven. But he said, it's, Paul said, it's not of works lest any man should boast. God is not going to let one person in heaven brag on themselves about getting themselves to heaven. When you get to heaven, there'll be one, if you get to heaven, there'll be one person who we brag on, and it ain't going to be us. It'll be the Lord Jesus Christ who provided the way of salvation. But the Pharisees believed that they could get themselves to God. So that's who this is, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, ruler of the Jews. Verse 2 says, the same, speaking of Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. Now, he's clearly, more than likely, under conviction. He has seen this temple cleansing. He's seen the miracles, something stirring in him, but uh, he's not ready to be public with it. He has some private questions. He's, he's not interested in the other legalists, the other Pharisees, seeing him get around Jesus. So he comes by night and said unto him, Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, that means master or teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Now, let me say this real quickly. Everything Nicodemus said was true. It's true. He recognized by the works of Jesus Christ 
that he had to be a teacher from God because no one could do what Jesus was doing except God be with him. He's right. But he's not right enough. There's more to Jesus than him being a good teacher sent from God. I saw the other day a little video clip of, uh, of a guy that, well, he was a singer, a, a Christian singer from back in the 70s, I believe. He, he's been dead for many, many, many years now. But he talked about how he came to Christ. And I thought it was fascinating uh, what he said. He said he, he began to do some investigations of world religions. He said he went to Buddhism and, and checked them out. And in the middle of his study of Buddhism, he, he heard that they had good things to say about Jesus. And they called it Christ consciousness. The Buddhists would call it that. He said he began to study the Hindus and that religion and, and all of their multitude of gods to see what he could find over there. And he found out, similar to the Buddhists, the, the Hindus, they had good things to say about Jesus. Now the difference is, the Hindus said, Jesus is one of our many gods. But he noticed they said good things about Jesus. He said, I, I, I looked at Islam, and I noticed Islam had good things to say about Jesus. They believed he was a, a prophet of Allah. And they glorified Jesus as a great teacher, great prophet of Allah. He said, I noticed that all of these world religions were saying good things about Jesus. They were all acknowledging him to a degree. So he said, I decided, well, let me go investigate this Jesus because they're all talking about him. And they're all saying good things about him. So he decided, I want to go investigate who Jesus is. And he got to digging in and he got to Jesus. Jesus didn't acknowledge any of them. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. But by me. It made me think, please don't laugh at me too much. It's, it's very odd that I even have this in my memory. When I was growing up, we used to watch the old TV show Magnum P.I. I just dated myself, and I understand that. We watched it every week, Magnum P.I. I don't know why I remember, I remember the episode like it was yesterday. It's the only episode I can think I can remember. There was this lady who was needing a private investigator to help her. And she, she lived there on, on, on the island of Hawaii with like Magna P.I. and the rest of the cool people did. And she went around all the private investigators and said, said uh, who's the best private investigator on this island? And they all said, oh, oh we are. We, I'm the best. I'm the best. Then uh, she would ask them, well, who's the second best? Well, probably Magnum. Probably Magnum. And she went to every one of them. And they all said, she, they all said that they were the best. Then she'd ask every one of them, well, who's the second best? And they all said Magnum. So she came into Magnum's office and she said, I, I want you to be my private investigator because if they all say you're the second best, that means you're probably the best. The best. Point is this. That man who was looking for God and all these religions, they all acknowledged Jesus as being one of them. They didn't acknowledge each other, but they all acknowledged Jesus Christ. And he got to the place where he realized, okay, 
if they're all saying good things about him, he's got to be the one. They're all saying they're the best, but he's number two. That means he's got to be the number one. But let me say this. He's more than number one. He's the only. There are no other ways. There is no other salvation. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we might be saved. There is no other alternative than Jesus Christ. There is no other plan. There is no other program. There is no other religion. There, there is nothing out there outside of Jesus Christ that can take your sins away, keep you out of hell, and get you to heaven, and get you to God, and have a relationship with God Almighty. Only through Jesus Christ. So Nicodemus is coming to him. He's saying the right things. Some of the right things, but he didn't get all the right things. Jesus is more than just a teacher from God. He's God in the flesh. Come to save men from their sins. So notice the comment of Jesus. And by the way, after we see this comment, everything after this builds upon this one comment that Jesus makes. In verse number 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee. And by the way, notice that Jesus did not say, thank you for the compliment. Jesus doesn't even express any type of appreciation for the kind words of Nicodemus. And possibly the reason why Jesus does not in any way accept it as a compliment is because it wasn't in reality a compliment. The man was missing who Jesus Christ really was. So Jesus answers him, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What an earth shaking, religion-shattering statement. Except a man be born again, born a second time, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of people today talking about the new birth. There are many people in many pulpits that give their ideas and concepts of the new birth of being born again. There's a lot of confusion about the new birth and what it is. What does it mean? What's the cause of it? What's the effect of it? A lot of confusion about the new birth. What is this being born again? What is this concept of the new birth? Why? Must a man be born again? Jesus said, except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That means without that second birth, you are disqualified from being in the presence of God eternally. You must be born again. Am I born again by getting baptized? Am I born again by joining a church? Am I born, uh, born again by turning over a new leaf? 
a new lease on life? What is this new birth? Well, the reason why we must have the why, if you will, of the new birth, the Bible says, David said in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He said, I was conceived in sin. That doesn't mean his mother and father were sinning, committing fornication or adultery when he was conceived. That David's mom and dad were godly people. They were married, had been married for many years. They had many other sons. David's mom and dad were not sinning when he was conceived. Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled. They were not in sin. When he says, in sin did my mother conceive me, what he's saying is, mom and dad are sinners, and what they are I got from them when I was conceived in my mother's womb. Every one of us are born with, talking about our first birth, we're born with a sin nature. We're born inclined to sin. We are born separated from God. Now that doesn't mean that babies and small children go to hell. I believe that Certainly a baby and small children who are not yet of the place and age and the mental capacity where they can fully understand sin and salvation and the gospel until they get to that place of understanding they are safe in Jesus. No doubt about it. If anyone in here had a miscarriage or a small child and you had to walk to the grave with a small coffin, you will see that child again if you're saved. You'll see that child again. But there comes a point in which that, that young'un can understand. It's different for every child. And at the point of understanding, they become accountable for, for whether they receive or reject the Lord Jesus Christ. but we're all born inclined in sin, desiring sin. We're born sinners. That's why you don't have to teach a child to sin. You have to teach them not to sin. I never, with one of my children, now Jojo, here is how you sock Levi up the side of the head. Here's how you do it. Never had to do that. As soon as Levi was old enough to take a punch, Jojo punched him. And then I found out Levi knew how to punch him back. They lie. As babies, they lie. The Bible says that they do. Having a child tells you that they do. You don't have to teach children how to sin. They come into the world knowing how to sin. We're born with that. The first birth messed everything up. Because we're all born into sin. Therefore, there has to be a new birth. Because of the new birth or the sinfulness of that first birth, not, not necessarily what caused the birth. 
My mama and daddy were God-fearing, God-loving Christians. My dad was a, a preacher, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, Sunday school superintendent. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. She walked with God. She was a gospel singer. That's, that's the couple I was born to. But they had to get born again because they were sinners. And when I was born, January 8, 1974, I came into this world sinful as well, and I needed to be born again because we are sinners. We've been separated from God. And God cannot associate with sinfulness. Therefore, there has to be another birth. You're in John 3, look at verse number 6. Here's the what of the new birth. The why of the new birth is we're born in sin. The what, what is it? Look at verse 30, excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 3. That which is born. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's birth number 1. And that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is spirit, lowercase s. That first word spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit. The second spirit, that's your spirit. We're talking about a spiritual new birth. I'm not talking about something physical. Therefore, it has nothing to do with that baptismal pool. It has nothing to do with you coming down and joining a church. It has nothing to do with you out there doing good things. It's completely and wholly spiritual. Born of the Spirit. Born of the Holy Spirit. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, I don't, I'm not going to make you turn there. But Peter says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So John here in verse number 3, where Jesus says words in John, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Peter says, you're born of the Word of God. So when the Word of God is preached and delivered, sent forth, the Holy Spirit takes that Word and somehow miraculously births you again into the family of God. We call that regeneration. You ever heard that term regeneration? That means to be born again. It's the new birth. It's being birthed spiritually in tomb. The family of God. In other words, the new birth, being born again, is a supernatural, creative work of the Holy Spirit through the use of the Word of God. It's a miracle. When you got saved and you were regenerated, God performed a miracle. Possibly the greatest miracle of all time. Well, I would assume that... Uh, God parting the waters will have been the greatest miracle of all time. But the waters aren't rebellious to God. Waters do what God wants them to do. They're waters. Everything that God does in this world by way of miracle, where he goes against nature, is involving a nature that does what God wants it to do. You come and visit us sometime, you're going to run into a large, hairy creature named Captain, our golden retriever. 
You know what Captain does every single day, consistently? Every day of his life, consistently. There's never a day that he takes it off and does something different. Every single day of his life, you know what he does? He does what dogs do. He does what dogs do. There's never been a moment where, Captain, you're not acting like a dog. He's always acting like a dog. Because he was created and made to act like a dog. But spend a little while with us in our home, and you're going to watch me and Kelly and the kids, and eventually you're going to be like, well, that's not very Christian. Because sometimes we may take the day off. And you may as well. Trees don't take the day off. The stars and the moon don't take the day off. They do everything the same way every single day, just like God intended. We humans, we're that part of creation that we always consistently fail to do what God created us to do and be. Even after salvation, we fail to be and do exactly what God wants us to be. Therefore, for God to get a dog to do what a dog is supposed to do, it's, it's a miracle that it was created, but there's no change that God has to make in that dog's life because that dog is doing what God wants it to do. But when it comes to a human being, we come into this world with our fists toward God, wanting our own way, desiring our own way, most of us, it takes us a little while before we desire his way. And so for God to get us to be and do what we don't normally do is an absolute miracle. The fact that God can take a man, woman, boy, or girl, and after they have trusted him, he changed them so that their desires change and their walk changes and they, they want to live for God and they want to obey Him. I mean, I'm talking the day before, they didn't want nothing to do with God. And all of a sudden, they, they want Him. They want God. They want to be around Him. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. It's the miracle of the new birth. When does the new birth take place? You're in John. Go to John 1 real quickly. John 1. Look at verse number number 12, verse number 12. But as many as received him, received Jesus, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Becoming the son of God or a son of God, not the son of God as Jesus, but the son of God in salvation, become a child of God. To become that, that is regeneration. That's the new birth. Even to them that believe on his name. So if you believe on him at that point in time, you become a son of God, a child of God. Look at verse 13. Which were born, born again, not of blood. Your bloodline has nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. I don't know how things are around here. 
But in upstate South Carolina, I don't know of anybody that's like this now. Back in the 90s, I knew some people who believed that if you were not of a particular race, you couldn't be saved. If you didn't have the right skin color, you were cursed and couldn't be saved. Your bloodline has nothing to do with your salvation. And just because your skin color is different, somebody else's does not make you any better than them. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, whether you like it or not. We've all come short of the glory of God. God's not a respecter of persons. We're all condemned and damned to hell in our sins left to ourselves. Your bloodline has nothing to do with it. Which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. Your flesh has nothing to do with it. Your flesh doesn't want to be saved. My flesh has been mad at me for almost 30 years now for trusting Christ. Nor of the will of man. Your own personal will does not save you. Now the Bible says, whosoever will may come. But me coming to Christ is not the saving act. That's me acknowledging I've realized I'm a sinner and I need salvation and I'm coming to Jesus to receive salvation. But he does the, he does the saving. He does the performing of the work. He accomplishes that. You trusting him doesn't save you. Him saving you is a response to your trusting him. Nor of the will of man. Watch this. But of God. That means nobody in here can take credit being born again you can't take credit for your first birth you can't take credit for your second birth God gets all the credit the only difference is I had no choice the first time but I have a choice the second time but I still don't get credit it's all of God it's all of him so let me ask you today are you born again have you recognized that you are a sinner in need of salvation? And in turn, received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're looking at John 1, verse 12. As many as receive Him, to them give you power to become the sons of God. Even them that believe on His name. Have you ever truly trusted Christ? Is there anybody, I don't want a raising of hands, but is there anybody in here that believes that your lifestyle or your behavior, like Nicodemus believed and all the other Pharisees, that their lifestyle and their behavior was contributing to their own salvation? There's nothing for you and I to add to salvation. God does not need our help. We need his help. That's why the Bible calls us lost. You're lost. If you're not saved, you're lost. Well, I know where I am. I live in, I live in the uh, Livingston Parish. You may know where you live in this world, but you're lost in your relationship to God. You may know your address here in this state and have no idea where you're going to end up when this life's over. You're lost. The Bible calls us sinners without God. 
Bible says we're strangers to God. You know what a stranger is? Somebody you don't know. We're strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. Aliens, the Bible says. And when he says aliens, he's not talking about little green men. He's talking about illegal immigrants. What's taking place at our border, that's a, that's a wonderful example. People trying to get into a place they don't belong illegally. Now, I'm not here to be political about that. I'm making a point. If you're here, sitting here today and you're enjoying the atmosphere and you're getting the benefits and the blessings of this church service, I'm glad that you're here. Why don't you come back more? But if you're not saved, you're an illegal alien. You're getting the benefits of the blessings of something that don't even belong to you right now because right. you're still in rejection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says you're aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the promises of God. And in that same verse in, in excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, says that you are without God and without Christ in this world. Also in Ephesians 2, verse 1, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You know how God sees you? Dead. Right. Dead. Separated from God. You're dead. That's how God sees you. Th those are not good things. Those are things that alienate you from God. And calls you to go to hell. Well, what can fix all that? What can fix me being dead in my trespasses and sins? What, what can fix me from being a stranger to God or an, uh, an alien to God? What can fix me being a sinner separated from God? What can cause me to go from being lost to being found? What can fix that? The new birth. You must be born again. I think the number one problem in our churches today, the number one problem, I don't even think there's a close number two. The number one problem in our churches today are that our pulpits and our pews are filled with unregenerate people. I think we're living in a day, I plan on it, brother, thank you. I think we're living in a day we have more unregenerate preachers in the pulpit and more unregenerate people in the pews than ever before. There's so many unregenerate people that we become Laodicea. Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, Jesus was on the outside of the church knocking on the door because there's so many lost people inside that church. You are not going to heaven because you're a member of Fundamental Baptist Church. You're not going to heaven because you sing in a choir. You're not going to heaven because you're a Sunday school teacher. You'll go to heaven and escape hell because you've been born again. And that's the only way. I wonder, there's going to come a day Revelation 20, 
The Bible calls it the great white throne judgment. At the great white throne judgment, this is the last judgment of all the ages. And every lost person, every sinner, every stranger to God, every alien to God, every dead person, in fact, in that passage, Revelation 20, all the dead will stand before God. Not talking about necessarily physical death. It's about those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. All sinners who have never been saved will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. Now those who, who are saved already, we will already have been judged at the judgment seat of Christ where we receive our rewards. But many years later, God's done with this world, he'll have the great white throne judgment. And I can't have a wonder, just spanning this crowd, I wonder how many of us in here right now that we will actually see you at the judgment seat of Christ when the saints get their rewards. And I wonder who in here will not be at that judgment but you'll be at the great white throne judgment when all the lost of all the ages stand before Christ. And by the way, there will be no second chance at that judgment. You decide your, your eternal condition in this life. At the great white throne judgment, God's not going to judge whether you can get into heaven or not. He's going sh- to show you why you're not getting in. And whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. And if you're, you're not saved in this life, that means your ne- name never got written down in the Lamb's book of life. You will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So I'm wondering, as, as Fundamental Baptist Church, the saints of Fundamental Baptist Church are standing there in the grandstands, witnessing and watching the great white throne judgment, How many of us are going to stand there and watch you stand before Christ and be told by Him while we are witnessing, depart from me, I never knew you and cast you in the lake of fire. They used to have an old gospel song. It's not the most spiritual song in the world. But it had a good message. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, Lord, by and by. There's a better home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. Will the circle be unbroken? It's talking about a family circle. Mom and daddy, children, grandchildren grandparents, aunts and uncles, everybody in the family, that, that family circle. And the song's about will, will the circle be unbroken? In other words, will everybody in that family make it to glory? Yeah. Or will that family circle be broken and many of them go to hell? What about the family circle of Fundamental Baptist Church? Will our family circle be unbroken? Will every single one of you see us at the rapture, see us at the resurrection,
See us at the judgment seat of Christ. Or will a day come where we don't see you there, but we see, we see you standing before Jesus at the great white throne judgment and we witness him tell you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And he cast you in the leg of fire. How many church members of Fundamental Baptist Church are going to go to hell because they've never been born again? I'm not trying to cause anybody to doubt. Don't misunderstand me. God did not cause me. He did not call me to cause people to doubt. But he did call me to tell you the truth. Not everybody that names the name of Christ knows him. Not everybody going to heaven, or not everybody that says they're going to heaven is going. Uh, one of the great quotes of church history was John Newton's quote. He's the writer of Amazing grace. But that would be a good imitation on him, by the way. Amazing grace. John Newton said years ago, he said, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at the people who are there that we didn't think would be there. There's probably a few people I thought they were going to go to hell and they really were saved. They were saved. There was a situation that took place in Resurrection Baptist Church. I'm not going to get into it, but there was a young couple. They were seeing each other. And that, that young girl was, she's kind of wild. She's kind of wild. The young boy, he wasn't all that wild. He said he was called to preach. He was one of my young preachers. He wasn't all that wild. But I, I felt like she was hurting his spirituality. And I, I basically, and Kelly would say amen to this, I, I, I was not convinced she was even saved. Like, that girl can't be saved. And they ended up breaking up. And I thought, you know, I, and I, we'd had these conversations. God saved that young boy's life by getting that girl out of his life. That's how I was seeing it. But now a few years later, a number of years later, that boy is barely in church. She's married to a missionary. And I thought, and I've said this again, I said, you know what? I, th I thought well, God was saving his life. God was really saving her life by splitting them up. God saved her life. I would have sworn. Ain't no way that girl's saved. She got saved. She, she was saved. She just didn't get right with God. So there's going to be some people in heaven. We get there, but wow, didn't see that one coming. Wow, he, he made, she made it. I never guessed they would. But we're also going to look around, John Newton said, and we're going to be surprised at those who aren't there that we thought were going to be there. I've told you all this little story before. I want to relay it one more time just to give you perspective. The year before I got saved, the year before I got saved, I was 20 years old, the year before I got saved, me and Michael Rochester, he is the pastor of Morningstar Baptist Church in Packlet, South Carolina now. He and I are walking to the front door of Westside Baptist Church in Calvary for a youth rally. We're walking in the front door. And Michael looked at me on that front porch of the church. He looked at me and said, Joy, you're the godliest young man I know. And I wasn't even saved. On my way to hell. And if I died tragically during that time, the preacher got up and preached me into heaven. 
They'd all rejoice over the fact that we're going to get to see Joey Wampler one of these days. And the shock of all shocks, when they got to the judgment seat of Christ, they would have noticed, where's, where's Joey? Where's Joey? Because it didn't matter that I grew up in a preacher's home, in a gospel singer's home. It didn't matter that I had taught Sunday school. It didn't matter that I worked with the youth. I was lost and on my way to hell. So we're going to be surprised. Fundamental Baptist Church, I'm scared of that, that we're going to be very surprised when we get to heaven and not see some of y'all there. That we would have bet everything that you'd be there. But you're not. You've learned how to live it, talk it, act it out. But deep down, you've never been born again. John, you said we're going to be surprised when we see a lot of those that we thought would be there aren't there. But he said, but the biggest surprise of all is that somebody like me is going to be there. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I am found. Was blind. Now I see. How did John Newton go from being lost to found, blind and seeing? He was born again. You must be born again. I was blind, but now I see. What was the first thing Jesus told Nicodemus? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know how you go from blind to seeing? You must be born again. You know how you not go to hell, get saved from your sins, get to God, have a relationship with Him by being born again. Now you don't do the birthing, you do the believing. You trust Christ. You trust Him. And He'll birth you in the family of God. Until you really trust Him. You're in your sins. And that's how you'll die if you don't come to Him. So you don't know today whether you're going to heaven or not, safe from your sins or not. You don't have a relationship with God at all. Come to Jesus today. And trust Him before it's eternally too late. And His amazing grace will birth you into the family.